Joining us again, we have a lot of good questions, alhamdulillah, here, yeah, I'm just going through them, put some kind of, uh, make the most out of the, the next uh, 50 minutes or so that we have. Um, we have a first question uh, already uh, during the break, a sister Najia from the audience. Um, we'll take questions one by one, um, inshallah, so uh, after this question we'll um, see a show of hands and we have some audience uh, roaming mics as well. You're free to send any questions uh, by paper as well if you want. There's some here and I'll take one written one live, one written one live uh, like that inshallah. So can we have our first question? Do we have a... Um, Asalaamu As Alaikum. So if a, um, a man has gone through the gender change and now new identity as a woman takes a shahada, how do we uh, people in Dawah deal with this situation or this person and how do we accept them in our masajid or in our halakas or in our daily day-to-day uh, -day life a person is either a man or they are a woman and there is something in between called the mukhannath when we discussed that was yeah. that life yeah, yes that, that was wasn't it? so we have this in between now as for someone who has transitioned they are still regarded to be their initial gender their birth gender now, if someone, of course, tries to say, oh, this is, you know, you're being racist or, or something, you know, you just simply say, look, every chromosome in this person's body is either an XX or an XY. So we, if you don't want to use the word male or female, we can call people XX, which is in the place of female, and XY, which is in the place of male. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said people that are XX um, wear hijab upon puberty, and they go into this, the section which is behind where the men pray. And if someone is uh, XY when they're born, then these people go and stand with the Imam in the masjid and they don't wear hijab. And they have to keep their trousers above their ankles. So when a person, and they have to keep their beard. So when a person embraces Islam, we explain to them that if their chromosomes represent XX, then one of the obligations Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them, one of the responsibilities <coughs> Allah ta'ala has blessed them with is the adorning of the hijab and wearing long garments, uh, the jibab, etc. And as for someone who is XY upon birth, then this person, regardless of how they see themselves, upon embracing Islam, they, allow to, they must allow their beard to grow, and they pray with the imam in the front of the masjid, and they bring their trousers above their ankles. So uh, in a short way of saying the person is still a man, regardless of, of how they may see themselves. And this actually happened um, in my local masjid in Swindon, where I was raised. There was uh, a person, a man, who was in the army, and he said that he experienced some sort of difficulties in, you know, just being with the lads as they were. And then he gender transitioned to become a woman, and he felt much better, much more comfortable. And then he found out about Islam and, and embraced Islam and went to the masjid and started attending the durus of the sisters. And um, my mother sort of sent me a text message and said, there's this new... Uh, person, sister, sort of stroke, um, attending the durus um, uh, and attending the Qur'an class and we're not really sure about her. Um, there are some things that are a little bit off. So uh, this continued for a while and it turned, of course, some um, discussions were then had with the person and it was found out that they were uh, born as a male and etc, etc. So the masjid actually said to, uh, to the individual, 
We're very happy that you have embraced Islam, but your agenda is what you were born upon. Allah Ta'ala says there is a man and there is a woman. If you were born as a man, then that is your gender. Even if you identify as a woman, you can't go with the women. This is their personal private space. This is very intimately connected with culture as well. Because the issue of sex is clear. It's a biological thing, X, 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 Y. But the, the difficulty that people have is with gender. Um, I remember when I was at school, we didn't say gender is male or female. We said gender is masculine or feminine. And what is masculine, what is considered masculine or feminine changes slightly with different cultures. This is partly a problem uh, generated by when you have an environment of free mixing. Mm-hmm. Okay, what you actually see that happens is that men tend to retreat into um, a, a stereotype of what a man should be like. And women tend to retreat into a stereotype of what a woman should be like. So in any kind of free mixing environment, you'll find the men start to get a bit more bullish, a um, bit more laddish, macho. macho. Women start to get a bit more giggly, a bit more sort of girly. What you find in a, in a single gender environment, so for example, in a single gender school, a girls' school, mm-hmm. you find the full spectrum of girls. You find very sensitive, very feminine girls, and then you'll find girls who are effectively like tomboys, very tough, very aggressive, very macho, but they're still girls. You see, in a single sex environment, people are free to assume the full spectrum of what it means to be a woman or a girl and what it means to be a man or a boy. But once you start mixing the genders, they start to retreat into stereotypes. And once they do that, they become unhappy with who they are and think, okay, I need to now transition because I'm not uh, a man, I'm actually a woman. No, you're a man, but you're just more on the camp end, the more kind of feminine, quote-unquote, sensitive side of what a man is. But you're still a man. But the kind of uh, stereotyping, the kind of brainwashing from the LGBT movement, right, you're going to have to now undergo medical procedures, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to change your, uh, you know, this and that, you're going to have to have these operations, so you can fit in with what a stereotype of a woman is. Mm. Well, who said all women are like that? Look at the sister of Hamza, in the Battle of Ahzab, the Yahud, um, uh, Bani Quraidah, sent some scouts and there was one Sahabi, I forgot his name, Hassan ibn Thabit. He is in charge of guarding the women. All the other men are on the front line fighting. Hassan ibn Thabit is the poet of the Prophet So when this scout comes from Banu Quraidah, scouting on the women and the children they want to attack, Hamza's sister says, go and deal with him, take care of him. And he says, I'm, I'm a poet. I'm not. It's not my thing. If I could fight, I would be on the front line, not here. In another occasion, Hassan ibn Thabit is the Sahabi who defends the Prophet with his poetry and his khutbahs uh, when Banu Mustaliq come to embrace Islam. So this is not disrespect for Hassan ibn Thabit. It's Hamza's sister who picks up a piece of log and crashes it against the head of the spy. What, so Hassan astaghfirullah is not a man and Hamza's sister is not a woman? No. They occupy different ends of the spectrum of what a man and what a woman is. Unfortunately, in this society, has brainwashed people into thinking, if you don't fit the stereotype, right, you're going to have to transition your gender. You're going to have to turn your life upside down, biologically, emotionally. And subhanAllah, we have to learn to be comfortable with what a man can be and also with what a woman can be.
you know, part of globalization as well is that um, experiencing Hollywood movies and things like that. Um, what I think would be an interesting piece of research to do would be to look at um, gender transition and the, that sort of thing in Japan. Um, if you look at um, American cartoons, you see the, the hero is always really big and big chested and big muscles. And, uh, and if you look at the development of, he um, of Action Man, I don't know if anyone here is old enough to remember Action Man. Well, we are, yeah, definitely. So, <laughs> so for the youngers, we'll explain what Action Man was, right? Um, when, when we were lads back in the days with our rose-tinted lenses, <laughs> we would have an action figure. And the action figure was uh, a soldier, and we could dress him up as a Marine or in you know, different types of camouflage and that sort of thing. And he was basically just this flat-chested, uh, sort of thin doll type thing that we could just put clothes on. Um, over the course of the years, over the decades, he slowly developed a bit of an abdominal definition and then some pecs, and then his shoulders got wider, and now he's got some triceps showing. And then now if you look at the model one, he's like He-Man, right? All these muscles everywhere. So there's this thing about what it means to be a man has changed because of this whole thing about the, you know, the Hollywood and superheroes and things like that. If you look in Japan, if you look at the cartoons that they have, people always look pretty much the same. And the way that a person is, is distinguished as being the superhero or something else is because of an extra ability they have, whether it be you know, increased intellect or some you know, magical power or something like that. But the physical body is never, is never changed. There is, this is the way a person looks and that's reality. Mm. So when you look at sort of Japanese culture, you, we don't see that same type of you know, bodybuilding, um, ex extra masculinity sort of disease that we find uh, in, in Western culture. So it would be interesting to see over there whether this whole gender fluidity thing has the same impact over there, because the, the Japanese concept of, of masculinity is very, very different to what it is in, in, in the West. So that would be something um, interesting if anyone can yeah. pick up on There's that. There's also a, kind of, a good book by a woman called uh, Susan Faludi called The Terror Dream. And it's a book she wrote after 9-11, and it's about, it discusses discourses of masculinity and femininity um, in the context of the way that America responded to the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. And so she speaks about the way that um, you know, President Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, were framed in American media as being not just masculine, but hyper-masculinated, right? And, it, and as a kind of a way, as a kind of a necessity to kind of engender or promote in American society that they're safe and under threat of, of Islamic you know, fanatics or extremists. Um, but it's interesting the way that this discourse, therefore, is, is shaped through time. Sometimes it was pivotal moments. Take that. Look at Shakespeare's play Macbeth is an example, isn't it? Because Macbeth um, has just won the war for Scotland. And therefore, he is masculine. He's strong. He's brave. Um, but in the eyes of the, his wife, Lady Macbeth, he's... He's feminine. Why? Because you can't get the courage to kill the king of Scotland, King Duncan. And so she says, you're too, you're too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. And humankind, milk, therefore, is, uh, is a symbolism of purity and innocence and kindness and meekness and mildness. Um, but it was, therefore, unbefitting for Macbeth as a brawny man, strong and fighting the war for Scotland, uh, to symbolize... Um, signs of uh, effeminacy, so in, in her mind, effeminacy. Until, of course, he kills the king, and then, of course, he becomes man enough. But then even then, he expresses regret and remorse, and she says, you're, 
she's kind of, she kind of cusses him, you know, <laughs> because he said, come on, you're still making these excuses. And it reminds me really of, look at the example of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, Umar ibn Khattab, he had, there was a kind of a, an image of him, perceived image as being, you know, brawny and big and uncompromising, you know, and staunch. And people had this perception of him in Medina, even other Sahaba, they were scared of him. The women were scared of Sayyidina Umar because of this, because he was unflinching, uncompromising. In his Khilafah, once a, um, uh, one of his governors came in the house and Umar was yal'aboon bisibyani His kids were playing, he was playing with his kids on his stomach. He's lying on the floor and his kids are jumping on his stomach. And the man, of course, because in his mind that was going against uh, the, the social norm of what masculinity meant for Umar to be a Khalif should mean that he had to be brawny and uh, you know, very staunch and very strict and disciplined and have the image of, of that in him. And Umar then took his kids off and he says to him, rhetorically he says, <laughs> and how are you with your family? You know, like if I'm doing something wrong and this is not the way it should be done, how are you with your kids? And he says, oh, You know, when I enter my house, no one speaks. Like, look now. Because <laughs> if the dad enters, how dare anyone speak? And it's like a, a code, a social code of, of acceptability. This is how the man is supposed to be, has to frame himself around this kind of socially engineered construct of masculinity. And that's how it, that's in, it was in the man's mind, you know. And Umar says to him, uh, you're removed from your position. <laughs> if you can't show kindness to your family, how could you show kindness to the Ummah of Prophet A, a, a similar um, themed question from them, trying to go take them in, 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 in batches and things because we have um, many questions that are of a similar theme. Um, do you think that the change in these traditional gender roles, traditional gender roles, contributes to the family breakdown that you spoke of, uh, Salah Abu Hanifa. For example, uh, women working, then expecting men to contribute at home. It's a difficult question. I mean, the, the reasons for marriage breakdown are complex. And shying away from some basic realities of um, the family dynamic is, does, yeah, does lead to increased family break, breakdown. You know, the male... <laughs> by nature, almost instinctively. Uh, you know, we're, we're three blokes here just sitting down, four, four blokes just sitting down. We each have our own personal space here, yeah? If now I get very close to the sheikh, raise my voice, get aggressive, there's going to be an instant reaction from him. Mm-hmm. So in the marriage dynamic, a man is, 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 is um, programmed almost to respond to a threat from another perceived Male. So now when the sister, his wife, loses uh, aspects of her femininity, raises her voice, challenges his authority, his instinct is to go into secure my authority. So yes, losing understanding that ultimately, even when the man makes a mistake, he's still in charge. He's still to be given that respect and that authority. And this kind of uh, everything's up for discussion, everything's up for grabs, I don't have to listen to you, you know, um, let's just argue about everything that does increase the tension within the marriage, you know. That's not to say, our sisters, you, you always have to listen, you know, or that, you know, the husband's always right, but there is an, a kind of dynamic which needs to be respected where the husband is uh, ultimately the 
you know, the, the authority figure in the house, in that marriage, but the wife is smart enough to make him think what she wants to think, you know, and that doesn't involve challenging his masculinity, challenging his authority, shouting at him. So there is an element, I feel, where things which were norms and accepted and are now constantly being challenged, and that does increase the tension in the marriage. When a woman is working, she, of course, is earning her own wealth. And I know that there are some, some men that they, they feel that you know, any wealth that comes into the family, well, he's the head of the family, so it's his, and he can then legislate to his wife how she should look, use her wealth. Um, I remember one of the mashaykh being asked that, uh, about a woman who um, the husband wasn't working, and the, the sister worked, and she would portion off her wealth into three portions. One portion she would use for the family, one portion she would save, and one third she would send to her parents. And the, the brother has said to the sheikh that, you know, I don't like the fact my wife is giving so much money to her parents, you know, we should save more. So the sheikh basically put him in his place and said, excuse me, you're the one at home. In a straight away, you're the one who's at home. It's her wealth. If you have an issue with the way the wealth is being dealt with, then earn some yourself. You know, no offense to anybody, you know. So this is, um, this is something that, that a man has to understand, that if he has agreed with his wife that she will work, he has also agreed by necessity that the wealth she earns is hers. So he has no right now to then say to her that this is how you use your wealth and this is how I expect you to utilize it and this is where it can and can't be spent. If the initial permission was given by him for her to work, it's understood that the wealth she earns through that work is hers and hers alone. And whatever she does with it is ihsan, if it's, a, it's an act of goodness from her, if she spends it on the family. Because under, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الرِّجَالُ قَوَّمُونَ عَلَى النِّسَاءِ بِمَا فَضَّلَ اللَّهَ بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَى بَعْضُ وَبِمَا أَنْفَقُوا مِنْ أَمْوَالِهِمْ Men are the caretakers of women by that which Allah ta'ala has given of, of bounty, some of others, and by that which they spend of their wealth. So part of a man being the husband is that he is responsible for spending upon his wife and his children. If the man is unable to work because of illness or condition or it's been decided that the, the husband will stay home for whatever reason and the wife will work, then he foregoes what the wealth is utilized upon. He's, he's, he's foregone that. So it's now the woman that's taking care of the family. She is now responsible for how she utilizes her wealth. And this is something that um, many men need to sort of comprehend and understand that you know, both, both are working, but that doesn't mean that uh, you know, the wealth of the wife is his as well. So what I would recommend is what one of my teachers recommended as well, is not to have a shared bank account for the woman's sake. Wallahi, so, no, for the woman's sake. Um, your husband doesn't necessarily need to know exactly how much you earn. It's not something he needs to know. Maybe that your type of, you know, the relationship I hope so is good enough that it's something you discuss and you know, if you've got a wage increase or, you know, what sort of, that sort of thing. But if there is this sort of issue between the husband and the wife when it comes to spending. I know this is a slight detraction from the initial question, but it's perhaps relevant. If there is an issue of contention between the amount of the spending of the wife, then she's under no obligation whatsoever to, to say, uh, to share a bank account with her husband or to explain about how much she has in her bank account or how much she even earns. Um, you know, what's important, of course, is the husband knows that the job that she's doing is halal and she's not exposing herself to any danger or any difficulty um, to her person or to her religion and her honor. Um, but outside of that, then her affairs are, are her affairs. Uh, um, any uh, next question from the audience? Hands up high. Regarding our future generation, uh, one of the things that was highlighted by the speakers is parenting so, and the quality time that we spend with our children. 
My question is, what are, in your opinions, because time is something, especially living in this society, is very difficult to give to our children. So what are the main things that parents can do in their time with their children that you believe are the most important things in order to develop the children's identity as Muslims and prepare them for the future generations, inshallah? What are the main things? So how can we, basically, my question, how can we convert our time to quality time? Excellent question. How can we convert our time to quality time? I think, Jazakallah for the question, one of the things we began to do recently is um, have this like uh, a 15 minute dessert time, we called it, you know. And what it was is that the kids get together and the dessert is kind of like an added incentive. And we go through like uh, asking questions. So we took, for example, leadership roles was one of them that we started with. And so I'd go around and say, what do you think are leadership roles, you know, important for, for leaders? And then each one would give kind of their own, own understanding and opinion. And, and I felt that there was a kind of a, a real uh, intimacy in that moment between us because of the closeness. And because it wasn't kind of very stretched out, it was very short and it was kind of continuous over some time. I think in Ramadan we did it. Um, but I felt it was very useful. Um, other things, for example, I think are successful is that uh, it could be simple things like, you know, taking your child to school, for example, that walk or that car journey. So we try and practice, you know, for example, reading your Adhkar together is something that we try and do or in the car, uh, reading Adhkar together in the car, repeating after one another, leaving the home and reciting your dua, uh, these kind of reminders and then doing it together with the child. Um, uh, I try, for example, you know, in the, in the evening, dedicate some time after work, after you've had your dinner, after you've relaxed, have a time for Quran, just you and the child as a one-to-one, you know. And this, of course, because the main madrasa is, is, a, is a family home. That's where learning is done. That's where a child would, would kind of you know, learn more than in any other place, is what's being witnessed in the home. I think one of the key things is, you know, aside from, aside from the, the, the actual, actualized learning of teaching, uh, is that we should be cautious of not, um, I, I don't know if this was raised before, but about you know, marital disputes and the consequences could have you know, on the effectiveness of your, your physical verbal teaching. Uh, because remember, of course, that you know, when you're, if, you're, if you're married in a home, uh, those children are witnesses but they're silent witnesses. You know, they're witnessing everything, everything, not just what you say, but how you say it. Not just what you do, but how you do it. There's kafiyatul amal, there's the howness of the way things are being done in the home. And a child could learn instantly from one bad behavior, and that could shape their, their character and what they see as good or bad character. And I think we should just be, I know we, we do try, you know, Allah aid everybody, you know, but just, I think you should just be, you should try our best during times like one of the qawaid, in, they said, um, it said, try and keep every quarter of your home specific to that area. So inside the home, forget the affairs of the work and inside the bedroom, forget the affairs of the house, you know. Try and keep each quarter to itself. So therefore, you, do, you kind of don't overstep the boundaries of each quarter. Connected. Yeah, well, that's another thing. Coming. So there was an article about why, why are children addicted to their phones because they see their parents addicted to their phones. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're always, on, if you're an addict to your phone, your kids mm-hmm. are just learning from you. You see, but they won't say anything, but they'll just copy you. You know, 
But I think one of the key things is about speech, speech, you know, because if, for example, the husband's uh, abusing his wife, the child, therefore, is exposed to, to abuse, right? Mm-hmm. So he'll, therefore, he won't, of course, say anything because the child is perhaps insecure in that situation. They feel threatened, maybe themselves insecure. Um, but just always remember that, that you, whatever we do in the home, if our children involved, they're witnesses. Yeah. And that's next generation, and they're learning that behavior, behaviorism. When we think about quality time, we're usually thinking about what we regard to be quality. Mm. But there's also another person involved. So quality time is actually also what the children regard to be quality. So quality time is, well, what do you want to do? You know, it's not, it's not I want to sit down and read Quran with you now. Allah, Allah knows best how many times I've had a no. So, but it's like, you know, what do they want to do? Baba, can you yeah. watch this with me? Baba, can you come to the, can you park with me? Baba, can you do this? So it's, it's really important that, you know, when we talk about developing relationships and spending quality time with our children, it's allowing them to feel confident that they can be who they are with us that we are there to support them in, in them, being them, be allowing them to be who they are. And so we are their assistants and we support them. It's not about us modeling them into who we are. I mean, this is what happened to us in our generation. You know, I grew up with my father asking me, so which PhD are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I said, okay, yeah. Baba, you know, so thanks, Dad. You know, it wasn't a question of, you know, what do you want to do with your life? I wanted to be a Marine. And he's there talking to me about which PhD are you going to do? <laughs> so, you know, it's the whole thing about what does your child want to do? What are its skills? What are its utilities? What does it find pleasure and enjoyment in? Tap into that. And if you're with your child, when they're doing something that they naturally enjoy, that's an opportunity for you to impart things with them. You know, it doesn't have to be this artificially constructed time. You know, a lot of my friends say to me, oh, mashallah, you know, your children must be so knowledgeable. I'm like, of what? Like, oh no, but you're at home with them, you know? I've got 1,400 books in my house. It's like, yeah, if only. You know, it's like, I'm their father. You know, and I try and have them sit down for a dance or something. So how's that going to happen? Now, please teach me. Someone teach me how to do that with my children. The the the, the child wants to feel comfortable with the parents, mm-hmm. in them being who they are. So if we're able to to make sure that their enjoyments are halal enjoyments, then we join them in what they're doing, and then there's the opportunity for us to create memories. And theoretically, it's very good to you know to say let's all be involved in our children's. Um, what's interesting to them and so forth and show an interest. But uh, often what the case is that maybe the wife in this case or maybe in another case the husband, the wife wants the husband to take more of an interest in the children's tarbiyah and just engaging with them and being kind and gentle towards them. But how is she able to influence that change in, in him, for example? So how can the wife help her husband to change his mindset in dealing with young children, for example, if he's aggressive with them, maybe if he curses them or he has that, uh, you know, issue with them. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about shaitan, he says, Verily, the plot of the devil is is weak. Now, Allah ta'ala says, inna, which is now for emphasis. Inna kayda shaytani kana, mean it's it's a constant thing. So emphasis, and it's always occurring, da'itha, it's always weak. The shaytan is always weak. And then with regard, <laughs> regards to a woman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the kunna Verily their plot is, is profound, is immense. So, you know, this is, as a brother was saying, I just need to clarify this, you know. And the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa mentioned that he's never seen a person of such profound intellect as a man that is able to be subverted by someone um, so easily as a woman. So, you know, this is something that women need to understand is that 
Um, the way of, of getting what you want from a man is not to challenge him as a man, but just to utilize these abilities which Allah Ta'ala has natively given you as women that we as men can never comprehend. So whatever that is, the way you do things, which Allah Ta'ala said in the Kaidah Kunna Adim, that your plot is, is great, then that's the way you influence. So, you know, you each of you know best how you do that. So, I mean, one of the worst things a woman can do, say, or a wife can do to a husband, is have a go at him about spending more time with the children because that automatically creates a negative vibe uh, which the man would want to keep away from. Yeah, If she's making the home and if she's really enjoying herself with the children, you think a guy's just going to walk past and ignore that? He don't, doesn't want to be part of that? He will be attracted, you know. And I've more and more realized for, for men, you know, especially if you're in a senior position, say in a company and work, you're used to being respected, listened to, having your way, and then you come home and all chaos. <laughs> you know, nobody's listening to you. Nobody cares what you think. So it's difficult for that man. So the woman has a critical role here in drawing him in, in making that home a place where actually there's so much fun going on here and you need to be part of this. So having a go nagging him, telling him how bad he is and telling him how another father... Oof, you know. You see how much time that guy spends? Let, let it out, let it out. <laughs> you know, I was looking around, just make sure my kids and my wife are not here. As long as they've... Oh, no. They were there before and then they moved. Okay, I'm totally disorientated now. <laughs> But she can draw him in, and he may be going through difficulties, like, you know, things at work, things in dawah can get so intense, it just phases the guy. He's out of his comfort zone. So now he's going through a phase, and that, and that wife has to draw him back in by making that uh, experience pleasant. And as for the brother's question, it's a really brilliant question about what they, you know, what is quality time with your children? And... Uh, it took me a long time to realize it's not necessarily something Islamic, you know. In fact, teaching your children Qur'an can be one of the most uh, negative experiences in the mind of the child and of the parent. It's associated with failure, of mistakes. Uh, and I really admire those parents who manage to teach their children Qur'an in a very loving and pleasant way. It could be a game of football. It could be, um, you know, a board game. Uh, it doesn't often mean watching a film together because that sometimes is nice, but then all your attention is on a TV, not on each other. So board games tend to be very good. A game of football, going to the park, it's trial and improvement. You've got to find out what works for you. And often finding an exclusive time frame is difficult. So you've got to work with what you've got. So... Um, um, the sheikh mentioned about taking, going to school with your kids. That's an opportunity now that you can convert that into quality time. Uh, maybe going shopping. That, that's an opportunity to convert it into something quality time. So work with what you've got and convert those five, six minutes into something precious. You know, I, I remember something that stuck in my mind. It was General McCarthy. General McCarthy led the kind of U.S. Uh, purge uh, of communists and left-wing politics in the US and also led their foreign policy. A person who created great destruction around the world. And I remember watching a documentary about him that every day, he didn't spend any time with his family, but his kids really loved the fact 
he would come uh, in the night and just tuck them into bed. That was it. I mean, the guy was created all sorts of chaos and destruction around the world. But he had this one thing about his kids that he'd, he'd tuck them in at night, and that meant a lot to him, uh, to his kids. So taking mundane, everyday things and uh, kind of making them something quality uh, could be a way around the real-time pressures that we all have. It's a funny way of getting to the point, but please bear with me. There was some research done um, regarding people that, you, that drive to work and people that use public transport on their efficiency and productivity within their jobs. Mm. And it was found that people that use public transport for half an hour or more are more productive in their jobs than those people that drive to work. And part of the research um, showed that when people are using public transport, they're able to switch between their home presence and transition into their work presence. Mm. So by the time they, they get to work, they're actually mentally prepared for what they're going to do. So when they get to their job, they're already in the correct mode of being and they interface directly with what needs to be done. They become more productive. Now, what we have to understand is that when a man come home from work, comes home from work in this particular situation, it's the man coming home from work, he may not have had the opportunity to transition properly yet. His mind is still full of the things he was experiencing at work and things he may need to do for the next day and things like that. So to expect him upon entering into the door to be like, oh, can you quickly get the baby, the crying, or can you bring me, it's like, well, you know, it's... It, it, he has uh, to be in his cave. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, allow the person to come in and take their shoes off and, you know, put their jacket up and they'll go and wash their hands and they need to use a bathroom and change their clothes and just sit down <laughs> and be like, okay. So it's really important to, to allow people to have that transition period. Mm. You know, when someone comes home, they've been outside and outside they're experiencing different things that were obviously um, taking up mental energy. Uh, so if the sister's you know, concerned that you know, the husband comes home and isn't interfacing, then perhaps just give him a little bit of time to transition and make the transition something that he wants to do, as the brother was saying, to make the environment welcoming and warm, inshallah. So hijabi YouTubers, yeah, I know that's the thing everyone's probably thinking about now. Uh, we have a, a question here from sisters. With more hijabi sisters entering media slash social media who may not be wearing correct hijab, how should we approach this matter in, with regard to our daughters? Uh, is it better to have the presence of a hijab in society even if it's heavily beautified, the sister's saying, and maybe incorrect? Or is this phenomenon problematic for Muslim women? So on the one hand, at least our sisters are seeing someone in public, uh, 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 you know, identifiably a Muslim. But on the other hand, you know, parents might feel, should we, you know, encourage our daughters watching this character maybe sending out uh, improper messages? I think I'd like the sheikh to answer. Yeah. But it just reminded me as you were speaking about something. Uh, so Neil Gable, he said that, uh, he said reality was doomed with the birth of photography. <laughs> so reality was doomed. <laughs> because he said that the homo sapien became the homo scenicus. The, the, the man, the entertainer, right? And so if you think about, if you think about like the, the way you had a transitioning in the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century with the big screen in America. And they took those, uh, they took the, 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 the movie sets to India, and India had cinemas. And so they'd never seen America before. They'd never seen what America even was, but they had, of course, stories of this magical land of the American dream, and the streets are paved with gold and everything. And, uh, and they, did a, they did a study about the way that 
American women seeing American movies for the first time, how it changed their behavior patterns, their dress codes, their talking, their colloquialism and everything. And I think that we're struggling with that because again, it's about the, it's about the way that the image is dictating, isn't it, our discourses, yeah? The face of a woman is awrah. Mm-hmm. And it's not permissible for a woman uh, to put herself in a position where she's going to be exposing her awrah to multiple people. Um, of course, there is the whole discussion amongst those that say that you know the hands and the face aren't awrah unless there's a fitna, etc. So even if we go with the, that opinion, like Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi said, the, the face is not awrah if there is uh, unless there's a possibility that someone could be trialed by by the woman's face, in which case she covers it. So. If you look at the situation where a woman is putting her face um, on YouTube and she's speaking and part of that is she's showing her emotion and things like that, um, then necessarily there are going to be people that will be uh, brought to trial by that. Um, Necessarily. And uh, as such, such a thing becomes impermissible. Now, if a person wants to have a YouTube channel, the sister can do that. Inshallah ta'ala, we can say that her voice is not awrah. But she doesn't need to show her face. You know but there, there, there are many, um, you know, um, sisters on YouTube, you know, with with, with a whole range of uh, levels of ex- Islamic observance. I think the question is thinking more along the lines of my child, you know, should I encourage them seeing a a, a Muslim person, you know, in um, doing well in certain metrics, or should I kind of cut that off from them because there, there's also this. This, this the whole kind of maybe a role model idea. That you know, that because yeah, you you qadr qadriha. So what now happens if there's a need for the sister to have role modeling, because they live in a little village outside where there aren't Muslims. The only Muslim the woman that the, the daughter sees is the mother. Um, if there's a need for exposure. Then you can say, then you know, the, the the mother would explain to the child, you know, this isn't really appropriate, you know, going on on live like this, you know, we're supposed to be concerned mm-hmm. about who sees our faces and and who we smile and we giggle with and things like that. But if there is that need, that there's a concern that this girl may grow up not identifying herself as a Muslim or not even wanting to wear hijab, then you can say that within that confined circumstance, it may be beneficial for her to have some exposure. Um, but you see, everything, these sorts of questions have to be contextualized. They can't just be open. Yeah. Because the open ruling is, well, no, it's haram, what are you doing? That's your, your basic, that is the basic ruling. No, it's, it's not permissible for women to go and expose herself on, on, on social media in this way. But then when you take it into the context of who is it that's doing it, why they're doing it, and who is receiving it, okay, now then this is where the rules change. And this is why that sort of question can't really be asked mm. or answered in this type of forum. You know, you have to apologize, apolo- I have to apologize for that, that that sort of thing is heavily, heavily contextualized. It's, it's also a deeper point, not just for sisters, but even young, generally our, our, our children, that we need to, at one point, introduce them to the notion that not everyone is as strict as me, yeah. your parent. Yeah, right. It, there are it, going to be Muslims who do things that maybe... This is, this is also an important thing is that, um, when we talk about the deen, we shouldn't say to our children, Muslims do this, we say Islam teaches us, Allah Ta'ala taught us, the Rasul mentioned. Mm. Always about Allah and His Messenger. And this is the essence of tarbiyah. The essence of nurturing is that we allow our children to grow upon Allah said, Rasulullah said. Allah said, the Messenger said. This is tarbiyah. So the danger we have is, oh, Muslims don't drink alcohol. But I saw him drink, so he's not Muslim. Ah, 
straight to what have we done? Mm-hmm. This is like you know Khadiji mentality. You know, you've done a, you've done a haram. You're not Muslim anymore. So it's really important that mm-hmm. to stop that sort of mindset occurring, um, and to make and for them to stop, stop. You know, maybe they can lose confidence in their own Islam if they know they have issues. Is to keep things at the religion level, not the Muslim level. That you say these are the ideals of Islam. This is what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has mentioned. These are the th- these are the laws we're supposed to adhere to. But people differ in their iman and their level of compliance. And one thing that was interesting I heard once is don't look bad on a person because they sin differently to you. So of course there are things which need to be rebuked and there are things which we would um, say openly to our children. These are things which are categorically unacceptable. Yeah. Um, but it's important not, not to make it like, oh, Muslims do this, Muslims do that. It's about what you know, Islam tells us. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I wanted to ask a question about uh, nurturing and tarbiyah. Um, where do you draw the line with negotiating with your children? Sometimes it's never ending and it comes down to because I'm your parent and I said so. Um, I think about the hadith when your son will become your master at the end of times and how did we end up there? Is it from a shift of how we discipline and what we expect from our children? When you think about the negotiation, um, both parties in the negotiation could be of equal setting or one could have the upper hand. And it's important we always make sure that the children know we're the one who have the control of things. So when they negotiate with us, um, it, should, it shouldn't be that we feel be, that we're pressured into something. And, and I know this is the case that, you know, I've, I've had a conversation with my son before where I've asked him to go and do something. And he said, okay, if I do that. And there are times where you think, yeah, okay, that, that's fine. Where, okay, I understand that there's, you have something you would like to do and I'm preventing you from doing it. So if I'm taking up your very valuable time, then okay, you can do this thing afterwards. That's also a very slippery slope, as the sister mentions, that if we start negotiating for everything, um, then the actual relationship we have, which is one of authority, breaks down completely. Because the children always have to know that we still have the upper hand. And it's not about, you know, we're equal partners and we're just, you know, organizing things in that way. So to make sure that that relationship doesn't occur, it's important that the children maintain respect of the parents and that they know that their parents does many a thing for them. And, it, and they, they recognize that they are treated well and they recognize that the things they're asked to do aren't perilous, they're not dangerous, um, they're not cumbersome, but they're always beneficial. And, and part of what can help children understand that is for them to reflect about people who are in different situations. Um, whether it be through watching documentaries about where, places where there's starvation or where there's been genocide or where there's um, poverty, all these sorts of things. Then, you know, when a child starts complaining that they want to use the Xbox or the iPad or why they're having to do this, if they recognize that these things are actually luxuries, they're not you know, part of, it's not food, it's not water, it's not shelter. If they can recognize those things are luxuries, then that can help in maintaining the, the balance. When Ibrahim salam, he has the dream and he goes to Ismail, he says, So what is your view? He's not asking his permission. He's not negotiating. He's giving the child, Ismail salam, time to come to terms with what's about to happen. It's a divine injunction. It's, there's no negotiation about it. But he still asks, Fanzul Mada Tara. You know, a dialogue doesn't necessarily mean there's any doubt about what the outcome will be. The outcome will be what the parent wants. But um, there needs to be time given for people to come to that conclusion. What advice can the panel give Muslim parents with regards to this influence on our society? 
in terms of you know Muslim uh, gang uh, gov- drug culture sorry drug culture uh, entering into Muslim uh, youth experience I, th- I think one of the things is uh, to understand you know from from the basis of what Islam came to protect you know and one of them of course is the aqal is the in- inter- intellect and then for, to allow a child to understand how valuable the intellect is about reasoning and intelligence and and how we make sense of our social communications and our relationships is through intelligence and how the way that that a dependence on drugs would really impede our intellectual progress. I think that's the key way of seeing it, isn't it? So the child understands, well, that's something, an amana, a trust that Allah gave me of intelligence and that makes me who I am. I'm a social, intelligent being, rational being. And that drugs, it kind of, uh, it affects that. And also perhaps just to think about, like the brother mentioned documentaries, that some drugs, they, they have a kind of create a psychosis effect, you know, synthetic drugs. And there's people, you know, we all know about whose lives have been ruined by, by dependence on drugs, have lost things, lost money, broken relationships, broken homes. Um, and maybe kind of to relay those narratives could be effective, you know. I don't know of anyone who has become a drug addict by themselves. I mean, if anyone knows of, of somebody who has, then you know, please let me know because I can revise my position. But there's always been a situation of someone being invited towards it and a person wanting to be, be part of something. Not, not even peer pressure. It, it could simply be that you know, you're not particularly happy with where you are. The kids in a, in a household where it's not saying there's anything wrong. They're just looking for some excitement, something new, something interesting. And one of the friends or sort of a distant acquaintance is like, hey, you know, how about this? No, it's some fun. So the person thinks, oh, okay. So it's the whole point about the family life being such that the child isn't left open, <laughs> that, you know, to become attracted to these sorts of things. You know, some people, they... Because that's a vulnerability. No, no, a vulnerability, it doesn't mean that a person's intellectually impoverished. It doesn't mean that they're psychologically damaged. It could simply just mean that they're bored. And they're looking for something which is interesting, you know, and the experiences that are offered to them at home just don't take their fancy. And then, of course, they go to school and they go to college and there are all sorts of different things around them. And it's like pick and mix, isn't it? And the person is just left wondering, well, what looks the most exciting, what's more interesting? And it's just the role of the parent, I suppose, to make the home environment and the activities within the home have such a distinction away from that sort of way of being that they never seem interesting in the first place. I think we have to also look at why some young people are attracted towards drugs and some of the deeper issues of self-esteem in that the drugs offer um, an image. Uh, they offer, you know, can offer very large amounts of wealth, but also offer the child some sense of belonging and status. You know, uh, it's better p- to be known for something bad than not to be known at all. You know. So try and find a quality in the child that they can excel in. It might not be Qur'an, it might be martial arts, it might be art, it might be uh, baking. It could be something that the child can really be proud of, that they excel in. And if you value that, that builds their self-esteem. And, but when a child is completely mediocre, there's really nothing they're particularly good at. They become quite vulnerable that, look, I can offer you something that you're good at. You can be a dealer, you can uh, have fantastic amounts of wealth, you can be driving this car. That becomes much less likely if you have something which builds your self-esteem. And it might not be Qur'an, it might not be ilm, 
because that's not necessarily for everybody. It might be sports, it might be uh, academic studies that they really excel in, but I'm a firm believer that every child has to feel that they're brilliant at something. And the parent has to recognize that and reinforce that uh, to build their self-esteem and their sense of self-worth. And that shouldn't be something as superficial as looks. Yeah, It should be a real talent that you can say, you know what, this person's great at this or this person's great at that. And I, I think that could help uh, in some areas. And I mean, there's deeper discussions about how the problem of drugs has been let, uh, left to escalate, um, the lack of joined up thinking between the agencies, the lack of action by police, the lack of action by social care. All of these things do need to be looked at, but that's maybe for another discussion. Khair. I mean, on, on that uh, note, I'm, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but it's good that we ended on that positive note. You know, um, let your children believe that they are brilliant. You know, that's a, that's a good point to end on. I hope you'll join me in thanking the uh, esteemed panelists. May Allah uh, protect you and reward you all. Uh, I mean, Jazakallah khaira. Um, please continue the conversation on Islam21c.com. Um, we have many articles and, and um, uh, videos and podcasts about topics like these. Uh, alhamdulillah.